0: You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When you go to the eye doctor for an eye exam, there are a series of procedures that they engage during your exam. They test your vision in a whole variety of ways. They take that little flashlight and shine it in your eyes to check the dilation of your pupils. They tell you to follow their finger so that they can see how your eye muscles are working to see if you can actually focus. They check the pressure of your eyes when they pull you up to that little machine that blows the puff of air in your eye and you start blinking like crazy and crying. Oh, I hate that thing. But when the doctor determines that you need vision correction, one of the devices that they use to help you get the right prescription is called a foropter. The foropter is used to determine how a lens must be shaped to give you the clearest vision possible. What the eye doctor does is they pull this device up to your face and there are two holes that you look through. And then they begin to rotate through images, through lenses, and they ask you, which one's clearer? Number one, click, or number two, click? And you're like, uh, number one. And they're like, okay, which one's clearer? Number one, click, or number two, click? You're like, that's blurry. You're like, okay, this one. Right? They take you through this process because what they're trying to figure out is what the proper shape of the lens should be so that they can give you the clearest vision possible. And once they determine how the lens must be shaped, they then give you your prescription. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, the lens on the Christian life is Scripture. The Scriptures give us the ability to see God, to see the world, to see our own lives and everything about life in this world. Scripture is the lens that helps us see. But if we're going to gain the clearest vision possible, then the lens of Scripture must be shaped cross-culturally. It is this cross-cultural shaping of our scriptural lens that brings the gospel into clarity. It's this cross-cultural shaping of our scriptural lens that brings mission into clarity. It's this cross-cultural shaping of our scriptural lens that brings the kingdom into clarity, relationships into clarity, vocation into clarity. So my question for you as you sit out there is this. Does your scriptural lens have a cross-cultural shape? Have you ever considered the possibility that your vision on the Christian life, that your vision on the decisions that you make, that your vision of your relationships is a bit blurry because you don't have a cross-cultural shaping to your lens? Have you ever thought about that? As we've been walking through the book of Acts, we have followed Dr. Luke's account of the early church. And with each new scene, Dr. Luke rotates the lens from a homogeneous lens to a cross-cultural lens. And he doesn't even need to ask you if it's clearer because he already knows that it is. And he continues to drive us in this direction throughout this whole narrative. And today we're going to look at one of the most important developments, not only in the book of Acts, not only in the story that Luke is telling, but in the history of the church. This is one of those crucial moments in the the history of the church. And it begins with the birth of the local church in Antioch. And I just want to flow through this text this morning to help you to pick up what Luke is getting down. Now, I am going to try, as the young folks say, to get in my bag. Because y'all know cross-cultural is not just My my hope for our church, it's a personal conviction, but it's also the way that I see all of Scripture and all of life. And as your pastor, I want to give you more of a sense of some of the contours and the dynamics of this lens in hopes that it will help us to gel together better in our mission and in our life together. So let's just start getting it in. I just want to do some straight exposition Of this text, and I want to try and pull some of these things out because a lot of the things that are in this text you could easily read past and not pick it up. You could just breeze past it and not notice the details. In verse 19, Luke makes a reference back to the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how the Lord pushed the church out into the global mission through persecution. Because they were doing their ministry among their own kind. And they were seeing lots of fruit. The Lord was blessing that ministry. But the Lord wanted more for his church. The Lord had bigger plans for them than just staying in their safe space. Staying in their comfort zone. And so persecution descends on the church. And then what we noticed is that Luke walked us through one branch of the family of God. He he then picks up on the story of Philip and how Philip goes to the Samaritans and then Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. Then he grabs the story. He he brings in Saul of Tarsus and he introduces him into the story and he begins to tell you how Saul got his start because later on Saul is going to play a major part of the story. Then he picks up on Peter and this is really sort of the, the final scene Uh, in which Peter is featured as a missionary. Because what Luke is going to do is he's going to fade the story of Peter out as he fades in the story of Paul. And then he's going to tell the rest of the story. He's going to orient the rest of the story around the ends of the earth ministry that Paul takes lead on. Paul and Barnabas and Silas and, and a small apostolic band. But in our passage right here before us, What Luke does is he sort of it's sort of like a parenthesis. When you get the martyrdom of Stephen, it's like chapters eight through the first part of chapter 11 is like a big parenthesis. And then what Luke does is he resumes that story by exploring this new branch of the family of God that is spreading as a result of the persecution. Now, what we notice is that he gives this After he gives his final snapshot of Peter's ministry, he gives us this this additional branch. And he tells us about this nameless group of disciples that traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, pay attention to the contrast that Luke draws in the text. Put your eyes on the text. He says that there was this group, right, that they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, check it. They knew their people, and that felt familiar. And so they were sharing the word, and it's good. Luke does not give them a bad rap for that. But what he does is he celebrates by way of a contrast this nameless group of disciples that have a bigger vision. Do you see it? He says, he says that there was a group of them that was only preaching. The, they preached the word to no one except Jews. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. I love that. But there were some of them. You know, one of the things that we often fail to realize is how prone we are to follow the crowd. And we often index our actions and our thinking to the crowd rather than to what we know is right and good and true. We allow the crowd to pull us away. But if you do a biblical theology of the crowd through the Bible, it was the crowd that sparked a mutiny against Moses in the wilderness. It was the crowd that called for Jesus to be crucified and Barabbas to be let go. The crowd all through the Bible is not a good group to follow. There's always this small remnant of people who have this clarity, that have this vision, that have this boldness. And that's what we see happening in this text. They're not following the crowd. They're following the spirit. And I think it's important. We just read an article as a leadership. Our elders just had a retreat this weekend. And we read an article by Tim Keller. And he, he tells this story about when he was in college and the, the chapel on the college campus, it used to have a cross on top of it. But then when they started getting all the, the interfaith stuff going, they changed it from a cross to a weather vane. You know, it's the, the thing that looks like a rooster, but it, it shifts with the blowing of the wind. And he said he and his friends used to, to make a joke that that was an appropriate sign over that chapel because they were being blown around by every wave of doctrine. We don't want to be a weather vane people. We want to be a people that's anchored in the cross, which is to say anchored in the personal work of Christ. And all that that entails. And that's what we see in this community. Luke is sure to let us know that the hand of the Lord Was with them. Do you see it in the text? He's pulling out these hints. And he wants us to know that this is the kind of community. This is the kind of missionary activity. That the Lord blesses and multiplies. And he wants us. Listen to me carefully. He wants us to stop nibbling around the edges of the cross-cultural life. And to go all in. There is a way of nibbling around the edges of the cross-cultural life but not going all the way in. There's a way of seeing life where you don't get the deeper contours and you don't live in to the deeper structure of this life. It's like the difference between Fruit Loops and Gumbo. Fruit Loops are different colors, but they all taste the same. But Gumbo... Each element contributes its own flavor and then all together the flavor is elevated and that's why we love gumbo. Hallelujah. Praise God. Right? Right? We want to be a gumbo community, not a fruit Loop community. All right? <laughs> Sometimes you just have to put it in a clear and accessible way to be reminded of what it is we're aiming for. Because if you think that our aim is just to get different color people in this room and not to blend our lives together and to have conflicts and to really grow through those conflicts into a united family, then you're missing something really important. Because there, like, just let me highlight why that's not enough. Plantations in the antebellum South had different color people on them. But the power was not shared. We want to have a community that has real, thick, cross-cultural love that issues in real cross-cultural mission. And this text pushes us. He wants you to stop nibbling around the edges and playing it safe and doing that surface-level cross-cultural thing. Why, though? Why? He's going to tell us as the text develops. Look at verses 22 through 24. All right. The report of this conversion of the Hellenists. All right. So Hellenism was the, Helen, the Helena, Hellenists. It's the Greek word for Greeks. It's Greek culture. Right. So these are Greek culture people. There was probably a mix of those who were religiously Jewish and those who were not. But the Hellenists is to say that this goes beyond the boundaries of Judaism, right? Now, when the gospel goes out to in this group believes and it says many people are coming to faith, right? The word gets back to the mother church in Jerusalem. And they're like, wow, we got to send. We got to send someone up there in, to inspect. And then they pick the homie Barnabas. And Barnabas was like the perfect candidate to come up to see this work because Barnabas was his nickname his real name was Joseph but his his nickname was Barnabas and you know what Barnabas means son of encouragement just just pause there for a second and think this dude lived his life in such a way that his nickname was son of encouragement Now, I know a lot of people whose nickname could be son of criticism, son of nitpicking. But wouldn't it be amazing? Could you imagine what this community would be like if we had sons and daughters of encouragement filling this place? That's who the Lord providentially has the mother church send up to check on this work in Antioch, right? Now, I think that this is a powerful Powerful word that I want you to pick up on. Look at the text. The text says, when he came and saw the grace of God. When he came and saw the grace of God. Look at the connection that Luke is making. What Luke is teaching us here is that it is specifically cross-cultural community that makes grace visible. When we refuse status quo estrangement and move toward difference, we make grace visible. When we integrate all of our differences under a shared redemption, a shared kingdom, and a shared savior, we make grace visible. When we live into the truth that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, we make grace visible. When we repent of excluding and erasing fellow image bearers and make room for them in our community, we make grace visible. And this is why Luke wants you to stop nibbling around the edges of the cross-cultural life because the church is supposed to make grace visible. That's how our neighbors begin to see grace. Listen, it's one thing to describe grace. It's another thing to see it in action. It's like the difference between me describing barbecue to you versus feeding it to you. Two different kinds of knowledge, right? Two different ways of knowing. You may not really care much. Oh, yeah, that's nice. That sounds good. But when you actually eat it for yourself, it gets your attention in a different way when it's good. And that's similar to what we see Luke proposing here. It's fine. Like, we do need to describe grace. We need to delineate grace. We need to, to lay out the theological contours of grace how grace is not only the way in which God forgives our sins, but grace is the means by which we are transformed so that we no longer do the same sins. But ultimately, the most powerful witness of the church to the world is to make grace visible through cross-cultural community. And the reason why some of our neighbors struggle with faith and with church folks and with the credibility of the Christian faith is because we have often failed to make grace visible through cross-cultural love. For the early church, you notice the text says, a great many people were added to the Lord because they made grace visible through obedience to the cross-cultural mission. I want you to understand what I'm saying to you. I'm not saying to you, wait until you feel like living that life so that it's authentic. No, do the life, (laughs) live the life and pray for your emotions to catch up with what the Bible teaches you to be right, what scripture teaches you to be true, with what you know is consistent with the gospel life. But we should also notice the subtle word that Luke gives in verse 23. Look at verse 23. The text says, when Barnabas, look at this, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Do you notice the additional layer? You see what Luke is saying via Barnabas? That living into cross-cultural love and mission is remaining faithful. And we're in a day where people actually suggest that this is a departure, that it's being politically correct, that it's just, it's just being keeping up with the times. And I'm like, no, the church was about this cross-cultural mission and this cross-cultural community before it was popular in the culture. And guess what? The church will be committed to this long after it's no longer fashionable in this society. Because you can tell, politicians and people out here in the world, they like diversity so long as it suits their political purposes, of maintaining political power. And when it doesn't suit their purposes, they shift up, weather vane. I'm telling you, there's gonna come a day where it's no longer popular. And in that day, we need to be ready to remain faithful to this call to cross-cultural love when it doesn't seem to hold out any immediate benefits because it's faithfulness. When it's difficult and it requires such deep self-sacrifice, we remain faithful. The cross-cultural life of love and service is faithfulness. That's important. And this is one of the central reasons why the American church needs renewal. This is one of the central reasons why many American Christians need renewal. But once Barnabas sees this exciting development in Antioch, he's like, he's looking at this thing and he's like, yo, you know, you know who would be amazing in this mix? Saul of Tarsus. And so he's like, i got to go find Saul of Tarsus. So he goes out and he tracks down Saul of Tarsus. He drags Saul back to Antioch. And they spend a whole year investing in this community in Antioch, teaching them the way of Christ. Because remember, this was not just diversity. This was doxological diversity. This was a diversity that was subsumed under the lordship of Christ, that was grounded upon the resurrection of Christ. This is what held this community together. So Barnabas tracks down Saul, and and then Luke gives us another little hint of what the, the special thing that's developing here in verse 26. Look at the last section of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, the pagans in Antioch knew all about these people because they did not keep their mouths shut about their faith, but they proclaimed it everywhere they went. And as one contemporary put it, if you go back and you look at first century documents of of different writers who were not Christian, who were actually commenting on this, this is what they would say, quote, These people were always talking about Christos. They were the Christ people, the Christians. You know, Christian was a slander, like the way a lot of people say they're woke. They call and they're Christians, but subtly, there's something powerful happening here because you know Christus, Anointed One, is is a shorthand for King. So what they were saying is. Those are the king's people. And what Luke has given us is the contours of what the king's people look like. When they're faithful, when they're following the spirit, when they're keeping in step with the spirit. But there's more to this. The Antioch church was the first place that the gospel had actually created a new humanity out of different people groups. Before this moment, the outside world They saw a group of Christians meeting together, and they only saw Jews. And so they thought that this was just another branch of Judaism. And if it had been Greeks or Romans exclusively, they would have concluded that this was some kind of Greco-Roman religion. But what really confounded the world and what really gave rise for the need of this new title is that they looked at these people and were like, Well, it's not exclusively Jews, and it's not exclusively Romans or Greeks. They're not Herodians. They're Christians. Why is this important? Because in many parts of the world and in many people's minds, Your faith or your religion is simply a function of your culture of origin or your family of origin or your class. But when the city of Antioch saw something absolutely new, people coming to faith across cultural, racial, and class boundaries, then they realized that this was something unique and different. The cross-cultural life of, of the church in Antioch seriously undermined the popular skepticism that believed all religion to just be part of one's culture like i'm christian because i'm american or i'm i'm buddhist because i'm chinese or i'm muslim because i'm turkish right i remember having a conversation vanessa and i got to go on a mission trip to china and one of the high privileges of my life was getting to preach in a house church in china an underground church in china and we, had, we were all over the place. We were in Beijing, and then we were in the Sichuan province. And in the Sichuan province, we were doing a cultural exchange with a the school there. But it created a lot of opportunity for us to talk with young professionals and students who had never been exposed to the Christian faith. And I remember having this conversation with this one young man. And I was just asking him, like, what, what do you believe? And he, he was telling me about his, his beliefs, and he, but, but he wasn't really like like really strong on his beliefs. He said, you know, but I'm Chinese, you know, like I'm Buddhist, I'm Chinese, just like you're Christian because you're American. And I said, what if I told you that the Christian faith is represented all over the globe and it was never captive to one single cultural or ethnic group? And he started thinking, he was like, well, that would be different. And I said, it is different and got to lead him to faith. And we corresponded for years and to see him catch fire, join a house church and then be a faithful Christian, his name was Randy. And I loved Randy. V, you remember Randy? He just came to mind this morning. It blew my mind. But there are a lot of people that think that your faith, your religion is just a function of your culture. But what we see in the text of Acts is that we're, Luke is trying to dispel any notion that the faith that the Christians hold is simply a function of culture. No, it's something altogether different because it includes all peoples. It's for all who believe. There was no more powerful witness to the unique power of the Christian faith and Jesus Christ than its cross-cultural dynamism, y'all. By the end of the passage, these new Gentile converts are sending financial resources to their brothers and sisters in Judea. Look at the dynamism here. It's because of their Jewish brothers and sisters that they heard the gospel in the first place. They hear the gospel. Then when they hear of Agabus' prophecy that there's a famine coming, they say, we want to participate in, in providing for the saints in Judea. They love the brothers and sisters instantaneously because they have received such a great love. And then think about it. If you're in the church in Judea and you hear word, things are going on. You're like, "Mm, I'm not exactly sure what's popping up there. Let's send Barnabas up there. And if you're still suspicious of the Gentiles faith, then all of a sudden a large gift comes back by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And they say, Here's the evidence of their genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. They heard a prophecy that you're going to be struggling hard times before long. And they sent this for your provision. What are you thinking? Man. Something real's happening there. Right? This is cross-cultural dynamism. So Jews were loving Gentiles and Gentiles were loving Jews and they were all worshiping God together as one local church in Antioch and it blew everyone away. Antioch was a thriving metropolis of about 500,000 residents and it was like a cultural epicenter. It was like a meeting place in the Mediterranean world, Greco-Roman culture. You had a Jewish outposts there of the diaspora. You had Mediterranean culture. It was a crossroads of different cultures. And so it's very powerful that the church in Antioch blows up in this cross-cultural way because it leads to something very profound. Nobody else, nothing else historically had brought peace to estranged people groups. And Christ is recognized in the midst of this unity and diversity in a compelling and profound way because they were not preaching cross-cultural diversity they were preaching Jesus and what then results is cross-cultural love and diversity never get those flipped the world may have cross-cultural diversity to speak of but they don't have Jesus and Jesus is the only one who can actually hold the cross-cultural diversity together why why because the world does not have this category, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. They're missing the key ingredient, and that is grace. Because when you get into the mix with different people, and all of your differences clash up against one another, you start canceling people, you start distancing from people, and really, what you do is you you find yourself a fruit loop diversity. That's what is. That's what we see in a lot of the world. Because when you get down to the real substantive differences and disagreements, whether they be political or or oriented about anything else, it's like, oh, us versus them. Polarization again. But that's not what you see in this community. Because it truly was founded on the Lord Jesus. It was founded on the gospel. And what we see here also in this text, just another, another little piece, is that the gospel is enough. To hold us together. The gospel is enough. And if for some reason you struggle to remain in union with your brothers and sisters across lines of difference. There's a hole in your gospel. You have an incomplete gospel. Okay. What we're seeing in Antioch is a minor fulfillment of Jesus prayer in John 17. You remember what Jesus prayed in John 17? Lord, I pray that you would make these disciples one, even as we are one. The Lord wants to see the kind of unity in our body that is reflective of Trinitarian unity. There is no breakdown in the unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. But Jesus hitches the reputation of God to our life together in John 17. And he says, and the world will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Now, what do you see developing in Antioch? The world comes to know that Jesus is Lord and that these people are Christians, the king's people, because of the way they loved one another. Listen, I want to demystify the Christian life for you. It's very clear in its most core nature. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbors. Which neighbors? All kinds of neighbors. Whoever the Lord has placed you around, love your neighbors as yourself. In this, the whole law is fulfilled. And guess what? In this, the mission is fulfilled. In this, you really are beginning to live the life of a disciple. This is where your real theology is tested. You could say, I believe this set of neatly put together doctrines. And your life can tell a different story. You can also have a very kind of loosely defined, you may not have all your theological ducks in a row. But you can live into this life beautifully. And if you asked me which one is preferable, I would tell you the life that is actually embodying the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It has specific contours, faithfulness does, making the grace of God visible happens through cross-cultural community. But this is not all. Luke is killing in his text. He's doing so much here. Here's another important thing that develops out of this text. It was the congregation in Antioch that first mobilized the whole global mission of the church. They were the first church to actively send missionaries around the globe. And this happens, we pick this up in Acts chapter 13. In fact, it wasn't just one missionary journey. It was the three missionary journeys of Paul and his associates that were based out of Antioch. And the gospel spread throughout Asia Minor and all the way to Europe because of the church in Antioch. In the church in Antioch, there were people of varying walks of life. Like, you have to ask, why was it out of Antioch? that the global mission was really launched. At Antioch, there were people from all different kinds of cultures, all different walks of life, all different classes and age brackets. They were like a a mosaic. And when they lived their lives together, they started learning more about each other. Where are you from? You know, I'm from Cyrene. Tell me about your family. Well, you know, I grew up in a family like this, but my family doesn't know the Lord. And then their brother or sister says, I'm from from Cyprus and my family doesn't know the Lord either. And then Saul and Barnabas are in the community and say, we're planning on taking the gospel out. And they say, let us support you. You see, what what we learn is that the church in Antioch cares about the world because the world is represented in their local church. It wasn't this generic Africa. It had a face of a real brother or sister that they knew and loved and cared about. And they saw the zeal of that brother or sister to see the gospel go to their people. And they said, I'll give to see the gospel go to your people. And then it was reciprocated. And so the gospel goes out all over the world because of this group of believers living in cross-cultural community with a heart to see Jesus Christ magnified and redeeming all different kinds of people. They had that kind of vision. They weren't getting caught up in the little stupid stuff and bickering and fighting like that. It took us to add that into the church. It's one of our contributions, right? Now, but what I'm saying is this. There is something special that's happening here in Antioch. And what Luke is doing is he's highlighting this church. He loves the church in Jerusalem. But what he holds up as the standard going forward is Antioch. That's the standard. By the way, he tells the story throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Because what happens is that the Jerusalem church fades out with the fading out of Peter in the telling of the story. And the Antioch church and the mission of Paul and Silas and Barnabas fades in in the rest of the telling of the story. What Luke is doing by way of his narrative framing is helping you to see the importance of this work and how it should shape the way we think about our work in our place, in our time. I, I mean, here's what's powerful. Antioch was a bustling city where people from all different walks of life came, cultures Came together. Does that sound like any city you know? (laughs) Just like DC. And this same potential is before us. Having received Christ and then growing in faith, these new believers had a desire to see the faith go broadly. And imagine, like, like Paul and Barnabas are teaching, Saul and Barnabas are teaching these believers for a year. And you can imagine Paul posing the following question to the church in Antioch as he would again later in in his letter to the Romans. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And it's not apart from this experience in Antioch that Paul wrote these words to the Romans. It was the church in Antioch that took the lead in the worldwide mission of the church. And it's a powerful, powerful picture. They were delighted to send their money, to send their people, to send the message and the hope of the gospel abroad to family, friends, neighbors, And countrymen in obedience to Christ. But here's the thing. I love that we have global partnerships. But here's the thing. And we're going to maintain those global partnerships. But you don't have to cross the ocean to minister to the nations here. You just have to cross the street. And the question is, will you? Are you crossing the street? For the early church, mission was not simply programmatic. It was not just a line item in their church budget and they sent money and they had no real regard. No, it flowed out of who they really were. The cross-cultural awareness of global needs that we see in Antioch is, is one of the more refreshing characteristics of any healthy church. Such an understanding is inherent in the DNA of a church populated by diverse people who have chosen to walk together in love for the sake of Christ and the gospel. But there's another facet and another one, right? By the time you get to Acts chapter 13 and you look at the leadership that is described in the Antioch church, listen to how it's described in chapter 3. Chapter 13, verse 1, this is what the text says. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul of Tarsus. Now, what's interesting in chapter 13 is that Luke List these leaders not just by their name, but also by their ethnicity. He lists them by their ethnicity as well. Simeon is called Niger. Why? Because he was from a country located in sub Saharan West Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, a city near North Africa in what is today known as Libya. Next, we read of Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which tells us that he was from somewhere in Palestine, and he was a man of privileged upbringing with pedigree and resources. And then he doesn't necessarily need to comment on where Paul and Barnabas are from, because he's already done that. Paul is from Tarsus, Roman Tarsus, and he has that dual citizenship thing. And then Barnabas is a Cypriot Jew. Luke has listed the five leaders of the church in Antioch, not just by gifting and role, but by ethnicity as well. And what he's showing you is that it wasn't just a cross-cultural community. It was also a cross-cultural leadership. Well, why does that matter? Because it shows you that the church at that early stage was also attuned to power dynamics. And it was important to them that representative diversity of that city was even at the leadership level having a voice in how the church was led and shepherded and managed and cared for. So from top to bottom, throughout, it was a cross-cultural church. I love this. Two people from Africa, one from the Mediterranean, one from the Middle East, one from Asia Minor. Luke is doing more than just giving us a description here. He's giving us us a cross-cultural prescription so that by seeing with clarity, we would become a church that makes grace visible for our neighbors. And this takes us straight to the gospel. Straight to the gospel. Because the reality is this. What can nurture and sustain this life among us? It's knowing that God First made grace visible by sending His Son. God made grace visible through the incarnation. He didn't just describe grace to us in the scripture. He sent His Son in the flesh. He made grace visible through the earthly ministry of Christ. He made grace visible through the cross of Christ. He made grace visible through the resurrection of Christ. He made grace visible through the diverse body. Of Christ, the cross-cultural bride of Christ. That's how he continues this witness of making grace visible. This is our calling. This is our mission. This is our challenge, and this is our opportunity. Now, at our elders retreat yesterday, Pastor Joel, Elder Chris Saunders, and I, we were talking Um, We told you, you know, Pastor Glenn and I and Pastor Joel, we have friends who were affected by the shooting that happened in Nashville. And one of Pastor Glenn's friends was in his office and he saw the shooter go by. And he just he hid like this. And now he's beating himself up because he's like, should I have done something? I could have this. I saw the shooter before it actually went down. And what Chris said was. Yeah, man, I mean, how do you react in those moments? You react out of your training. And it reminded me of this quote in the book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. He says this, you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Now, if I could just spin off of that, I would put it to you like this. You don't rise to the level of your cross-cultural inspiration. You fall to the level of your cross-cultural formation. It's It's a formation issue. And that's why we are trying to conduct this ministry like we are. There are many people who have been inspired by the cross-cultural vision of the Christian life. But when you look at their lives, when you look at the church, you don't see much evidence of cross-cultural commitment. Why? Because you don't rise to the level of your inspiration. You fall to the level of your formation. All of the communal practices that we take up at Grace Mosaic And all of the household practices that we commend to you on our website and through worship daily prayer project are carefully crafted and designed to form you cross-culturally. And one of the most important applications I can make to you in terms of like, so what do I do with this text? Stop nibbling around the edges of this church. Stop being one foot in and one foot out. Go all in. All in in Grace Mosaic. That means it's as simple as something like showing up to worship consistently. Your social media and smartphones get you for like four to eight hours a day. We get you an hour and a half to two hours on Sunday And if you come to CG another hour or two, we get you for as much time in a week as social media gets you for one day. Now, if you only come to church 50% of the time, we get you less. This is not shaming you. This is instructing you. What we do here on Sunday matters. How do you live into this? Fully invest in the life of this church. Serve through our teams that serve this church. We have a a variety of teams. Be connected in community. Show up to events. Because there's something powerful when all of us are here. It's it's sticky. The more all of us show up, the, the higher the percentage of us that show up for all of the important things that we do, Neighborhood parties, significant services that we're having, service projects out in the neighborhood. The more of us that show up, the stickier we are. Because when our neighbors come, they then get a real vision of what this thing is. If they show up and it's like a handful of stragglers, they get a very different perception on what this is. It's as simple as participating and engaging with the daily prayer project regularly. Look, I know I'm the theological editor, but all the hard work is done by Joel and Ashley and the rest of the team. When I tell you I watch them break a sweat to ensure that the DPP is is reflective of the cross-cultural riches of the Christian community, they really do. They are pouring through all kinds of materials so that they can help you to be formed cross-culturally, do not let that important resource remain untapped in your life. There's all kinds of ways to work this out, but I'm trying to simplify it to one thing. Put all your chips in the table, if you remember here, all the way in, all the way. in. Yes, it's going to cost you. Yes, you're going to have to say no to some things. Yes, there's going to be some cross to carry. Yes, there's going to be self-denial. But you know what that sounds like? Sounds like the life that's in Jesus. It sounds like following Jesus. That's at its simplest level. That's what we want for you. If you are not fully formed in the totality of your life cross-culturally, then your motivations will be sus. Yeah, you didn't know I was hip like that, right? Uh Uh-huh, I got to keep y'all guessing. You're like, okay, he's still hip. Your jacket. You know what? You know what I observe? This is what I observe. A lot of people do cross cultural because it makes them look good. There are other people that do it because it makes them feel good. Christians do it because God is good, the gospel is good, life together is good because that's what God has designed for us. And when we live into His vision, life is so much better. This is what it means to be the king's people. The Lord desires to open the arms of his embrace to the world through his church. The Lord has determined how our lens should be shaped and he has given us our prescription. So let us order our lives under the king in this specific way, living in a way that is worthy of the name Christian. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.com.